Isaiah chapter 51 is where we will be. Isaiah 51. It was a Southern California morning, early in the morning. The sunlight, I remember vividly, was streaming through the shutters in my upstairs bedroom. It was summertime, and I couldn't understand why my dad was shaking the foot of my bed and ripping me out of REM sleep. And the, and the bed's starting to shake, and I think I hear my dad singing, and I'm like, no, Dad, and I sat up and woke up, and there was nobody there. And I realized that uh, the shaking was an earthquake <laughs> that had waked me out of my sleep. That's my earliest recollection of what would be a very common occurrence growing up in Southern California, I can tell you. But it woke me up. We sometimes need a little shaking to wake up. To wake up. Well, you're going to find that this is a theme tonight, the idea of waking up, being awakened. We're going to hear about this throughout Isaiah 51 and 52. We'll go as far as about verse 12 in Isaiah 52 tonight. We're in another interlude, an interlude between servant songs, between the third servant song and the fourth servant song. But don't think simply because it's an interlude that this is a place to nod off. God makes sure of this in the language through the prophet that he keeps us engaged, keeps us awake, because the things that we will talk about tonight are as critical as what we see in the servant songs. And we hear three wake-up calls in the midst of this interlude. Now, the wake-up calls are not sung off-key. They form a perfect movement in what you could call a symphony of the servants. In these servant songs, and in this second part of the book of Consolation, remember Isaiah 40 through 66 is the book of Consolations, beginning with comfort. Oh, comfort my people Israel, Isaiah 40 verse 1. And so he wants to console his people, to comfort his people. And the servant songs do just that as they point to Jesus, the servant, Messiah, who would come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves, who would first come to the Jew. And then also to the Gentile. To do what the Jew couldn't do for himself, nor the Greek. And the Bible's clear about these things. But I want to show you quickly, before we go back and look at all of this, the three moments where there are wake-up calls. Let's work from the back forward. Go, go to Isaiah 52, verse 1. <clears throat> Isaiah 52, 1. This is the last of the three wake-up calls. But I want to start here for a reason. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake! Awake! The word in the Hebrew, I believe, is ur. 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 Awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. The very first call, or actually it's the last call, to awake is an awakening to redemption. Awakening to redemption. And that's really where we're going to end tonight. We'll come back to that place. Awake to redemption. God is saying to His people Israel, Awake to your redemption. Open your eyes. Sleepyhead, get out of bed. And awake to redemption. Now, back in Isaiah 51, verse 17. It says, Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk From the Lord's hand, the cup of His anger. By the way, the phrase, rouse yourself, not really sure why they went with rouse instead of awake. Same exact word. 
Okay, it's still Ur in the Hebrew. Awake, awake, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. And what we will see in a moment is God here calls His people to awake to repentance. Awake to repentance. They will end in the place of awakening to redemption. But first you've got to awake to repentance. Repentance before redemption. So that's the second one that we see. But the first call to awaken is absolutely key to the other two. Without the first call to awaken, the other two would have no basis. The other two wouldn't be even worth hearing or waking up to. Isaiah 51 verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Here, Isaiah, for the people, is calling out, the wake-up call. This is not God saying awake, it's the people saying awake. It's Isaiah representing the people Israel. And he's calling, wake up to the arm of the Lord. And as we will soon see, the arm of the Lord is a person. The arm of the Lord is Jesus. Awake to redemption, that's the last wake-up call. Awake to repentance, which precedes redemption. But before either one of those, awake to the Redeemer, or awake the Redeemer. Before we can repent, before we can be redeemed, the Redeemer Himself must awake. And that's what's going on here, Isaiah, calling the arm of the Lord to rise for the deliverance of the people. And when the time was right, Jesus did just that. He rose. He awakened out of the sleep of death, if you will. He came back from the grave. Three wake-up calls here. And understand, as we go through this, the arm of the Lord, what you might call the divine reach of God, is Jesus. And I thought it kind of appropriate. That's what kind of shook my memory of my dad waking me up. You know, his long arm reaching into my room and grabbing the end of my bed and singing those songs and waking me up. And that's kind of what's happening here between the third and fourth servant song. The long arm of the Lord reaches out. The divine reach of God the Father in the person of Jesus. Shaking us to wake us and call us to repentance and redemption because the Redeemer Himself awakened at the right time. Here's what you need to keep in mind now as we go forward. Three wake-up calls. The Lord will extend His divine reach, His arm, three times in this section. But keep this in mind. This call to awaken anticipates a beautiful day. And that my dad did do to me on Saturday mornings in the school year. Especially when the sun was shining, it was beautiful. Get up, Rick, it's a beautiful day! And I'm like, oh, you know... I'm living it out with my own kids now. <laughs> it's beautiful outside. The sun's shining. Shut up, Dad. Go back to sleep. It's dark. No, it's dark because your head's under your pillow. <laughs> the call to awaken, it anticipates a bright and beautiful coming day. By the way, speaking of the beautiful day that is to come, there's only one other time in all the book of Isaiah, in the entire scroll, where the Lord uses the word, the Hebrew word, ur, awake. Only one other time. Four times total in Isaiah. Three right here, one earlier. Listen to where it's from, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. <laughs> awesome! Those who have died are going to awake, so wake up! And in fact, Isaiah 26.19 gives us a preview of the wake-up call of the dead in Christ who will rise first. You remember that, right? 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. I hope you have this one down. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And I'm sorry if you get tired of hearing that verse said over and over and over, but I don't get tired of it. In fact, every time I hear it, it wakes me up just a little more. And the Lord would have us awake. The entire basis of the book of consolations, of this last section of Isaiah, is comfort. And the way God, the primary way, note this in Scripture, the primary way God brings comfort to His people is to remind them of the glorious day that's coming. He will do it over and over and over. What do I have to look forward to, Lord? Let me tell you, He says. My life is hard. Yeah, think about what's coming. Let me keep your eyes fixed on that day, that full day we sung about earlier. Keep your eyes on the day. It's a beautiful day. It's coming. And there is great comfort in simply remembering that and simply knowing that. Now, what's interesting to me is this threefold wake-up call comes immediately on the hills of the last servant song. Notice how it ended. We read this on Sunday. Isaiah 50, verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. And immediately after this warning, not a threat as much as a warning of a God of love, you're going to lie down in torment. You're going to set your own fire. Remember the story about the guy whose bed was on fire. I shared on Sunday and the police and the firefighters came and they put out the bed and they said, what happened? He said, I don't know. It was on fire when I lay down on it. What? (laughs) We do this to ourselves. We light our own fires and then we lie down in the torment of the fire that we lit. And God says, don't do it. Get out of the burning bed. Wake up. And He gives this wake up call now. Hey, your redemption draws nigh. So wake up. Don't lie down in the despair of your sin. Wake up to your redemption. And with that in mind, verse 1 of Isaiah 51, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain, When he was but one, I called him, and then I blessed him, and I multiplied him. Now, three other things to note here as we get into this. Number one, in the past, in the past, Israel was born of impossibility. Israel was born of impossibility. What Isaiah does here, what the Lord inspires him to do, is is point back to Abraham. Because every now and then, as Isaiah is prophesying and bringing these marvelous things, and again, just off the heels of the third servant song, this wonderful servant who's going to take the stripes for the people, who's going to sacrifice himself so they can be healed, and at the tail end of that, now he comes back around and goes, look, look, this is not an impossibility. And you ought to know this, Jews, because of where you came from. Look back to where this all started. Isaiah points to Abraham to declare that the entire history of Israel is a revelation that with God all things are possible. Because the history of Israel is a history of impossibility. 
In the past, Israel was born of impossibility. Think about this. A thousand years before David and his great kingdom. Centuries before the judges, or the fall of Jericho, or the miraculous exodus even from Egypt. 400 plus years back from that. All the way back, Isaiah says, go back to a crusty old codger. In a dusty old quarry. A man by the name of Abram and his wife Sarai, who, well... Sarah was beautiful, but she was brittle. You know, she was in her 90s when Isaac was born. Abraham was over a hundred at the birth of Isaac. No wonder they named him Laughing Boy. Yishtak means laughter. And and Abraham, this 100-year-old man, would bounce his little toddler on his creaking knees. It was impossible. Not only was it impossible because they were older... It was impossible because Sarah was barren. They had never had a child of their own. The only heir Abraham could assume might possibly be his was his nephew Lot. And their men didn't get along, so that didn't go so well. Look back to the quarry, to the rock from which you were hewn. Look back to Abraham. Look back to Sarah. These two passed their prime. These two who had been childless their entire marriage. When God said something really kind of ridiculous by human standards, to Abraham. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. I love taking you to Genesis because it's just so easy to find. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. I find it interesting. I I don't know that there's any connection. I'll just throw this out. Maybe some of you want to look this up and find out. But the Hebrew word for awake is Ur. Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldees. Is it the same word? I don't know. But the call to awake is a call we see throughout the Bible. And God calls out to Abraham, Abram at the time, Genesis 12, verse 1. He said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Now stop right there. Hold it, Lord. What? If you track up a few verses to Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, you see that Sarai was barren. She had no child. So not only did she not have kids, but the Bible is very clear. She was barren. She was unable to have children. Just the way it was for Sarah. And she, like so many women who have experienced that, that barrenness or that childlessness, especially over a long period of time, she had experienced it her whole life. Can you imagine how many times, especially in that culture, Abram and Sarah tried and tried and tried and tried to have kids and finally gave up. I don't know, long about their 70s? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Impossible. And the Bible tells us she was barren. And then down in verse 2 of chapter 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay? That's impossible. Right. Exactly. Now, perhaps that whole great nation thing was vague enough for Abraham Abram, that he thought he would just maybe rise up and lead a great nation. You know, maybe they call on him to be king of a great nation or something. I mean, obviously it can't mean offspring. Go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 says, After these things, after what things? Well, you'll have to go back and read that on your own. We don't have time tonight. But after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Or better translated, I am your very great reward. 
Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So at this point, not even a lot. He's thinking his, his chief servant, he'll just leave everything to him. Apparently, since Genesis 12, Abram's been thinking about this. And God says, I got gotcha. you. I'm your God. You're my man, Abraham. And Abram goes, well, can I just pose a question here? You said something about a great nation, and I'm childless. How, how does that work exactly? I have no offspring. Verse 3, you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house, is my heir, his servant. Now verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants, your seed, be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abram is progressing now. He's beginning to believe. At first it was, well, perhaps just a leader, but can't be my own. Then he asks the question, and God says, no, he's going to come forth from your body. Now, unfortunately, Abram, like so many of us, begins to rationalize and think, okay, from my body. But he didn't mention Sarai. So perhaps if I sleep with another woman, we can take care of this and get it done. You know, wrong idea. Which is why we often say here at the bridge, wait on the Lord. Just wait Every time we get out ahead of the Lord, we mess it up. Wait on the Lord. Ultimately, Abram would learn, and ultimately Isaac would be born of the body of Abram back in Isaiah chapter 51. Notice the exact language of what he says. He says, when he was but one, I called him. When he was just one guy, I called him. One man. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. And of course, you know the rest is history. By the time Isaiah is talking, millions of Jewish people had lived and were living. Millions. Because God loves to work in the impossible. With God, Jesus says, Matthew 19.26, with God all things are possible. Which includes what? Everything. All things. He didn't leave anything out. All things are possible with God. And that's the idea here in Isaiah 51 as it begins, look to the past. Israel was born of impossibility. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look at Abraham. Think about this, Israel. It was impossible, but God works that way. And so have hope. You've come from impossibility. You know, so often we will look to the past and we will mourn the past. We'll think about abuses or crises or problems that led us even perhaps to where we are today. And we'll we'll mourn the past. You know what's ironic about that? If you have the breath to mourn the past, it means that God woke you up this morning. Okay, said another way, if you have a breath for mourning, you awakened this morning. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, God got you through it. The reality is not, oh, my past was so awful. The reality is God brought you through rough times and you're still here. Praise the Lord. I had a conversation this week with an unbeliever, a friend of mine. And as we were talking, he he called this last decade of his life the lost decade. I just lost a decade. And he was describing, things are going a little better for him right now. But the last 10 years have just been dreadful. And he was describing all the things that have happened. And after he had talked about this for a minute, I just looked at him and I said, But you're here. 
And in my head I'm thinking, and as long as you draw breath, eternal salvation is just waiting for you to receive it. It's right there. As long as we're breathing, whatever happened in our past, rather than looking back in sorrow, we look back and say, wow, God got me through. He brought me through it. Asaph understood that. Asaph the psalmist, following what you call a dark night of the soul. Psalm 77. It's a psalm I love to go to when I'm feeling a little down. Because Asaph all night long could not sleep. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. His eyes were dry. He was sleepless. He cries out to the Lord. And he describes this in the first ten verses of Psalm 77. I just cried out to you, Lord. And you didn't hear me. And you didn't respond. And I didn't wake up this morning because I was already awake. I couldn't sleep all night. And then in verse 11 of Psalm 77, he finally realizes what the solution is to his depression. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. He doesn't even deal with his own life. Asaph says, I'm having a hard time seeing something good here, so I'm going to go back to your wonders of old. I'll remember those. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. And in the rest of the psalm, he describes the Red Sea. He describes the rescue from Egypt. And he finds his faith in the deliverance of God in the past. As opposed to losing his faith because of the difficulty of the past. All that to say, don't look back and wallow in old pain. Look back. Look back to see how God got you through. If you're having a crisis of unbelief and you look back thanking God for what He's done, you will find yourself in the confidence of faith. So, in the past, Israel was born of impossibility. Second, secondly, in the present, Israel was beckoned to pursue righteousness. I'm taking a long time at the opening here, but note this in verse 1. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. He's not just talking to anybody here. This is a word that goes out to those who really would pursue righteousness. This was the call of God. Pursue righteousness. This, in fact, was the purpose of Israel's calling in the first place. To live as a people by God's righteous decrees and commands. I'm going to give you my law, and I want you to live by it. Have your lives defined by it. And Israel, the Lord might say, you will reveal the perfection of my law. Did they? Depends on how you look at it. On the one hand, no, they failed miserably. But on the other hand, their failure proved the perfection of God's law. Israel's failure proved that no man could be so perfect. As God's holy and righteous standard. And of course in Romans chapter 5, that's why Paul comes back around and says, the law was given so sin would increase. The law was given so that man might recognize how perfect God is and how imperfect and flawed man is. That's why God gave the law in the first place. So you could say that Israel did their part. (laughs) Jesus said in Luke 16, 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The law doesn't fail. Man fails. So Israel did reveal the righteousness of the law, not in keeping it, but in proving no one could. But remember what Abraham teaches us. Look back to the rock from which you are hewn, Israel. Abraham teaches us that it is not law, it is faith that brings righteousness. And here's the key. This is why I'm saying this. You who pursue righteousness, if you would be one who pursues righteousness, who truly desires a life of holiness, you get there through faith, not through your works. 
through faith alone. What does the Scripture say? Paul writes, Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that's the key. For all of us who would pursue righteousness, we have to do it by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus. In the same kind of faith relationship that Abraham had with God. Abraham clearly wasn't perfect. He clearly got out ahead of God at times. He didn't believe God at times. He deceived others. He deceived himself. He lied. But Abraham, you see him slowly growing as he walks with the Lord in a relationship of faith. And over time, he would be called the father of the faithful. So in their past, Israel was born of impossibility. In their present, they were beckoned to righteousness. Be righteous. Pursue righteousness. But watch this. In their future, number three, Israel is bound for paradise. Verse three. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness He will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of melody. All these things in their future paradise. And the description is is graphic. Isaiah says literally the wilderness and the deserts are going to be made like Eden. Now, when I first went to Israel, I kind of expected the whole thing to be desert-like. That was kind of my assumption. Old pictures and old Bibles, that kind of thing. I thought it would be a desert wasteland. And you go there, and those of you who have been there, you know, wow. Especially if you get on that bus and head up to the Galilee. Right, Joanna? Stunning. The waters of the Sea of Galilee and the green all the way. It's just absolutely beautiful. It's not too hard to imagine the area of the Galilee being like Eden. It is hard to imagine the Negev being like Eden. The desert places, the wilderness, the waste places of Israel. And yet Isaiah says, no, no, no. You need to understand, the desert is going to be paradise. Flowing streams and trees. It's just going to be a beautiful... The whole thing will be one massive oasis, is his description. The paradise of God. But notice how Isaiah couples comfort with the coming age. And it's what I said a few minutes ago. God always ties comfort into what's coming. He connects comfort to hope. He connects comfort to our future. And when we don't have that future or we deny it or ignore it, we're not real comforted. All we have then is just to focus on this sometimes dreadful life. No, no, focus on what's coming. Look ahead and you will find comfort there. That's why Paul, looking forward to the rapture of the church, wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort each other with these words. Because the comfort of God is realized in the coming age. The comfort's realized in the coming age. Therefore, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, we don't lose heart. Though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Lisa Adelot gave me a bottle today of blue agave. Is that what that gross, nasty stuff is called? Some of you may use that. Feel free. It's it's a sweetener. It's a natural sweetener. Apparently people have been using it for 5,000 years. Goody for them. I put it in my tea tonight. 
I need white sugar. I know it's going to kill me. You know, you'll find another pasture. I need white sugar. It's funny because we're, you know, we, we have a lot of friends right now who are talking about a lot of health things, and, and I, I don't mean to, to, you know, be anti-health. I really don't, or to be cynical, or even to be unhealthy. But you know what? The best that we can do here is temporal. You can work out all your life. You're going to die. <laughs> you can eat the best of the best of all the whole foods out there and stop drinking milk. You're going to die. It, it doesn't matter what you do. Now you can live a little more healthy than perhaps your pastor lives, but you're going to die. And, and we, we still keep missing this. By the way, did you catch what comes out of this, this future mentality, this looking forward, this living for eternity and not for today? Did you catch what comes out of it? Joy, gladness, thanksgiving, the sound of melody. In other words, worship. When I am living for the eternal and not for the temporary life, I have a life of worship. And by the way, you will probably live longer in this life that way anyway. You want to know what the healthiest thing you can do for the human body is? Worship God. It's incredible what it does. How it lifts not only your spirit, but it lifts your physical body. God releases endorphins and all the tonins. You know, I mean, it all just starts to work as you worship Him. When you look back and recognize the impossibility of God's care bringing you through, when you heed the present call to righteousness, when you look forward to your future in Jesus Christ, you just have to worship. Putting all that together, it leads to a life of worship. Which is why the psalmist, Psalm 57, 8 says, Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory be above all the earth. And so these three things. And by the way, if you have been born again, then you have, as we've just studied, you have been born of impossibility. You are beckoned to pursue righteousness. And you are bound for paradise. Let's read on, verse 4. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me and for my arm, and they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. I think I just said that. (laughs) But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Jesus sums all that up in one phrase. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24.35 Now, in verse 4, the law that, that God says, I will send the law, the law will go forth from me. He's not talking about the law of Moses. This is not a law of the past. This is a law of the future. This is not a law for Israel. This is a law for all the peoples of the earth. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the coming millennium. 
the righteousness that will go forth in this world in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah's mentioned this law before. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And you might even note this in your margin. Just put a little Isaiah 2, 3 there by verse 4. Because he wrote, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law is going forth, God says. I'm going to send out my law. I'm going to send out... My word, gang, this law, this word of the Lord is more than the constitution of the coming kingdom. It is the king of the coming kingdom. Jesus, who who fulfilled the law, the old law in and of himself, will be the picture of the new law in the coming kingdom in and of himself. As Buchspazen calls him, he is the eternal Lagos. He is the word of the Lord who goes out. He is the Word of the Lord who pronounces righteousness and who reveals truth and perfection. He is the one about whom John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And watch this, at the end of verse 4, he says, I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. A light of the peoples. Well, you know, Jesus said, I'm, I'm the light of the world. But there's something else to notice here, and it's the word set. The word set in verse 4 is also translated, some of your margins, my margin says something that, that um, maybe one, it caused to rest, set, caused to set down, that kind of thing. But the word, gang, if, if you look at the original Hebrew, and Buchspassen is great for this because being a Jew himself, he translates really well. The Hebrew word set is argia. And argia means suddenly, unexpectedly. So it's something that's set out or brought into an immediacy. It's an immediacy of rest. The picture would be if you're running down the road and you're running hard and you're running fast and all of a sudden you just stop and sit down and you're at peace. That's the idea here. Something that's going to happen suddenly and when it happens changes everything. And then he goes on to describe this divine arm that judges the people, this law that goes forth that that is going to be a sudden and unexpected thing. That sudden and unexpected thing is the coming of Jesus. When He came the first time, it was sudden and unexpected. When He comes again, how much more so? When all the world is embattled around Jerusalem and in the valley of Megiddo and that battle is raging and everybody is focused on one messy business and suddenly, unexpectedly, Jesus comes out of the sky and the world freaks out. As the Bible describes Freaks out is, of course, Rick's paraphrase. But verse 5, he says, My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. And again, the arm is a person. The arm, the divine reach of God, is Jesus Himself. Three times in the interlude we hear Him talk about this arm. There in verse 5, down in verse 9, When it says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Again, that is Jesus being talked about. And over in verse 10 of Isaiah 52. Flip over there real quick. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the Yeshua of our God. The salvation of our God. He bared His holy arm. As we already know, the arm of the Lord 
is expressed in Jesus. The fully divine, fully human manifestation of the arm of the Lord. And again, imagine Jesus waking you up, (laughs) shaking the bed, singing in beautiful song that the beautiful day has come. Three times we see the arm of the Lord. We recognize that salvation is forever. And I again remind you, and I know I've said this before, but the word salvation, every single time you see it in the Hebrew, the word is Yeshua, Jesus. The very same word that is His Jewish name is the word for salvation. And I love knowing that because now every time I see salvation in the Hebrew Scriptures, I think Jesus. I immediately go there. Sometimes I just read it out that way. My Jesus will be forever. My Yeshua. And my righteousness will not wane. You know what will wane? This body of mine. You know what's going to wane? This mind, eventually, if given enough time, is going to start to wane. It's not going to work as well as it used to. But my righteousness, God says, never. Sin will wane over time. Pleasure, as we all know, pleasure wanes over time. Chocolate cake is not what chocolate cake used to be. Still good. But it's just that Pop-Tarts are not the same. They just aren't anymore. Where am I? Verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. I was talking to John Adelot the other day, and John said something I thought kind of profound. He said, you know, in a completely non-judgmental way, I can almost tell immediately when I'm talking with another Christian. Isn't that true? And he said in the same way, I can tell almost immediately when I'm talking to a non-Christian. And again, it's not a judgment. It's not like because, well, they're so evil and I'm so pure. And I just see their evil. It's like, ew. No, no. It's just, you know, there, there's, that, there's that sense. You, you're talking to somebody. You may not even... They might not, not even have told you anything about where they worship or where they fellowship or, or what they believe. But you're talking to me. you go... You're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, how'd you know? There's just that recognition. And God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness. I love that about righteousness. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we know righteousness, the more easy it is to recognize in other people and in our own lives. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, he says. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. And here's the key, gang. If you want to pursue righteousness, if you want to know righteousness, you have to know His law. His law has got to be on your heart. And I'm not talking about some legal set of rules. I am talking about the power and the potency of the Word of God in our lives and on our hearts. The Word of God. Psalm 119.11 Your Word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. He says in Psalm 119.34, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all of my heart. In Psalm 119.70, Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. You want a lean, mean, fighting heart of a machine? The truth is, keep the law and your heart will be strong. Now, someone might read this or hear me say these things and say, Okay, let's be honest. I know I'm saved by grace. Do I really have to pursue righteousness? I've had that conversation. I know I'm going to heaven. I know Jesus. But do I have to do all these things? Do I have to be involved with the church body? You know, do I have to get engaged in ministry? Do I have to watch what I say and be careful? Really? 
That's a lot of work, isn't it? You know what? Righteousness looks like a lot of work to someone who's not practicing it. But what we discover is in righteousness there is release. And the more I seek to be like Jesus, the more free I become. What binds us up is our sin life. What binds us is all the things that we think we want to do and all the pleasures we want to engage in. And we go, oh yeah, but I want the freedom to do this. It binds you up. Righteousness is freeing. Galatians 5.1 tells us it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the old way. You are free in Christ Jesus. And I'll say this honestly, gang, the Christian who delays the pursuit of righteousness simply and sadly does not understand what it means to be free in Christ. You hold it at arm's length. You stay away from the idea of truly pursuing the holiness of God. You just don't get it. Righteousness is freeing. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let's run in freedom. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's be holy people and be free as a result. Verse 9. Awake. Awake. Put on strength. The second wake-up call here. Awake. Or no, I guess the first wake-up call. O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So, or in a like manner, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now back in verse 9, we already know from Isaiah chapter 30 verse 7 exactly who Rahab is. We talked about this before, but let me remind you. Rahab is an ancient pagan sea goddess. Connected to the to an ancient creation myth that while one God was trying to create, there was this Rahab who was trying to destroy and, and create chaos and confusion. Rahab refers to Egypt. And you want to double check this again. Go back to Isaiah 30 verse 7 where Egypt is being talked about and Rahab is used as the comparison. And that's again what he's saying. He's saying here, you, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? God, wasn't it you who took apart Egypt? And he says, following that, was it not you who pierced the dragon? Now we know who the dragon was. The dragon is always a picture of Satan. In the Hebrew, Tanin is the name of, of, for dragon. And we know it's a satanic reference, but gang, it's probably here specifically referring to Pharaoh and Satan's use of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh is the dragon and Rahab is Egypt. Why do we know that? Because verse 10 refers to the waters that were parted for Israel but pummeled Pharaoh and his army. So the very context of this helps us understand who Rahab and the dragon are. Egypt and Pharaoh and then God dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. Clearly not the Reed Sea. You know, it's the... It's the waters of the great deep. This was a deep, deep ocean, a deep sea, the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea. 
And you know that whole thing about people who have tried to say, well, the Reed Sea, which was a shallow marshland of about a foot of water, that's really what God parted. A hot wind came through and it just looked like God parted that. And, and of course, you also know how remarkable a miracle that would be. Right? Because the entire army of Pharaoh would have to drown in a foot of water. <laughs> but the Bible is absolutely clear. It was the waters of the great deep that God parted. And we're talking about the exodus, the exodus from Egypt. And Isaiah is referring back to that and saying, it was not, wasn't not you, arm of the Lord, you divine one, you, Jesus, who did this. And so, in a like manner, the ransomed of the Lord will return, verse 11, will come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This call to awaken the Redeemer tells us who is responsible for the routing of Rahab. And he's the same one responsible for bringing Israel back out of captivity from Babylon and into Jerusalem. But that's not what verse 11 is talking about. It's not just the return of the exiles, and I know this because the phrase everlasting is used here. You're going to come in with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. And there's only one time when Israel returns to Zion, and the joy is everlasting, and that is when Jesus comes again. So it's that beautiful day again. Awake. The day is coming. Awake. It's near. Everlasting joy. Verse 12, continuing, I, even I, am He who comforts you. That word comfort is used an awful lot in this section of the Bible. Who are you, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, and of the Son of Man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. Now, Isaiah can be saying this, the Lord directly to the people right then. What are you afraid of, Judah? To a people 150 years later as Babylon is bearing down, what are you afraid of? Why are you so afraid of this oppressor? I am the Lord your God. I'm your maker. I'm the one who put you here. He says in verse 14, the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens and to found the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. Now note this. God says, I am the one, back in verse 13, I stretched out the heavens and I laid the foundations of the earth. Past tense. I'm the one who created that. But now in verse 16, he says, I have done these things. I have put my words in your mouth, covered you with my hand to establish the heavens and to found the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. And here he's talking in the future tense. And he literally says, I'm going to plant the heavens and I'm going to begin the earth. You already did that, Lord. This is the promise of the new creation. This is hints about what Isaiah is going to blurt out in Isaiah 65, 17. The Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I got a new deal coming, a new plan. This is just marvelous. And it, just last week I was talking to someone who, who's still just starting to grasp this whole idea. 
that after the rapture of the church and after the millennial kingdom, God destroys the old and creates brand new, a whole new set of living quarters for us. Different design. A marvelous design. Revelation 21 and 22, read it. It'll, it'll blow your mind. This is what we have to look forward to. It's absolutely wonderful. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. The first heaven, the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So for you surfers, bummer. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her, he- for her husband. And it just goes on and on from there. Have you ever just, seriously, just sat and read Revelation 21 and 22 and tried to imagine, tried to really picture what is being described there? Anytime you're having a bad day, that'll make you happy. Right there. Verse 17. The second, awake. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, past tense, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared, past tense. And in this second wake-up call, the awake to repentance, God tells Israel, no son of your past, no son of your present can take up your cause. But a future son will, right? A future son of Israel, son of David, son of Judah, Jesus Christ, will take up the cause for his own people, Israel. Verse 19, he says, These two things have befallen you who will mourn for you. And here are the two things, devastation and destruction. Or rephrased, famine and the sword. Devastation referring to famine. Internal angst, internal pain, internal problems. Devastation from within. Starvation inside her walls. And the other is destruction from without. The sword attacking from the outside. And then the Lord asks a wonderful leading question here. He says, how shall I comfort you? The end of verse 19. Here's the deal. It's been bad on the inside. It's been bad on the outside. How shall I comfort you? Hey, God's not asking because He doesn't know the answer. He knows exactly what the answer is. He set it in motion from the time time began. From the very beginning. Revelation 13.8 refers to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That the plan was already in place before the first man drew breath. God knew exactly what He was going to do to comfort His people Israel. He says, Your sons have fainted, verse 20. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. What is He saying? His people are just reeling. They're just... They're just spent from the devastation within and the destruction without. Please hear this. Thus says the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for His people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling and the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. It's another reason why we have to look forward. Because God says you will never drink it again. Since their return from Babylon to the land, they drank again the cup of reeling. They have drunk from the devastation, from the wrath of the Lord. They have become drunk on that chalice. Israel has. 
But a day is coming when God says you will never drink it again. He says, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. And this was typical in the Eastern culture. The Assyrians did it. The Babylonians did it. Other Eastern conquerors did the same thing. They would make their captives lie down in a long line down right down a street and they would march over them. Just walk on their backs. And you know what Israel needed? Israel got, they got a servant who would give his back to those who strike. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 we read on Sunday. I gave my back to those who strike. Rather Israel than you lying down, Jesus says, I will take the punishment on my back for you. Chapter 52 verse 1, the third awake here. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the circumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. And that's not talking about Gentiles. It's talking about wickedness. It's talking about evil. Will not come into the city again. Shake yourself from the dust, he says. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For the third time, he says, wake up. Awake to redemption. The nightmare. It's over. It's said and done. Luke 21-25, Jesus said there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear at the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, and Jesus says, listen, Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And so in between the third, the fourth servant song, we hear this call, this wake, wake up, O Redeemer, awake to repentance, people, and now awake to redemption. And Bible students, what is significant about the number three in the Scriptures? Trinity. What else is significant? Resurrection. The number three in Scripture always draws us to that picture of resurrection. And you see it in multiple different places throughout the Bible. And here in this interlude, we hear three times, awake, awake, awake. What is resurrection but an awakening, right? And the Lord calls this out, and I believe intentionally, three times, awake, indicating resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of a life given to Him, the resurrection of our actual physical bodies to eternal life, the resurrection of Israel. (coughs) Did you know the resurrection of Israel happens on the third day? Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him which is prophetic, I believe, if each one of those days perhaps implies a thousand years. Heard this way, He will revive us after two thousand years. He will raise us up on the third thousand year that we may live before Him. And if I'm applying that correctly, and I think I am, we're on that precipice right now. The two thousand years from the point where they were lost, they felt lost, they felt dead but would be raised up to look into that thousand-year millennial kingdom the third day. Three days. Three awakenings. 
And of course, in verse 2, he goes on, shake yourself from the dust, rise up. Here, the Hebrew words get a little hard to translate. The King James actually gets it a little closer. Rather than, rather than rise up, shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem, it's probably better translated, Isaiah 52, verse 2, in the King James, shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Rise up and sit down. You know, I, I like to do that sometimes in worship when I see people getting a little sleepy. Hey, let's stand up for this next song, you know, and then sit down. Rise up, sit down. It doesn't make sense. What, what is this? We had a fight song when I was in high school. Some of you remember that one? Lean to the left, lean to the right, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You know, it's basically just cheer aerobics. That's all it was. <laughs> rise up, then sit down. What's what's he saying here? The implication is God is saying, rise up out of the dust of captivity and sit down on the throne of royalty. Rise out of your death and sit down in the place of life. Get out of the bed of torment and sit down with Jesus on the seat of sovereignty. Jesus said in Revelation 3.21, one of my favorite biblical promises, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. I think when we were doing the Revelation study several years ago, I mentioned this, that uh, we used to have this big leather lazy boy chair that sat downstairs. Huge chair. And I was just a little guy at the time, and I can remember sitting down, squeezing into that little open spot right by my dad in that big chair, just kind of squeezing in together. And I get that picture now when I think of Jesus saying, overcome and I have a place for you right here. Right here beside me on my throne. What a marvelous picture. Rise up and then sit down in sovereignty and royalty. Verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. In other words, you were sold for nothing. It wasn't for God's benefit that the people went into captivity. He didn't get something for them. He didn't trade them in on a newer model. He didn't replace them with the church. He didn't say, I'm done with Israel. I'm going to try these people out. Maybe, maybe these Christians will work out better. God is not so foolish as to believe that. No. It wasn't for God's benefit that people went into captivity. It was for their benefit. It was that they might wake up. And where Israel is concerned, that's what the tribulation is for. That seven year tribulation, what he's doing at that point with Israel, once the church is out of the picture, now God is working with Israel to wake them up. Taking them back to Old Testament standards of relationship with God, with his people, and the wrath of God, and things happening visibly, shaking the world, and waking up the Jewish people in a final wake up call. A last chance opportunity for Israel to be saved, and gang, many will awake to the truth that they have slept through for so long. But in saying you were sold for nothing, God declares, another people didn't buy out your contract. I did not replace you, but I will redeem you. Verse 4, thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here? Declares the Lord, talking about Babylon. What do I have here? Seeing that my people have been taken away without cause, again the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl. And my name is continually blasphemed all day long, the babbling Babylonians. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day 
I am the one who is speaking here. I am. Note this. He says, who are these who blaspheme my name all day long? Don't you just get tired of hearing God's name just thrown about? I just, I can't, I can't stand it. And please, brothers and sisters, I know I have Christian friends who, who text OMG. I hate it. I won't let my kids do it. If I see it, immediate correction. Well, Dad, it means, oh my gosh. No, it doesn't. And I'm sorry if I'm hard-nosed about this, but I think the name of the Lord deserves a little more respect than that. And I think coming out of our mouths, the name of the Lord deserves more respect than sometimes we give Him. When people toss around His name loosely and vainly, I think it's because perhaps they really don't know His name. And to know His name is to know His character. And to know His character is to recognize His grace. And when you recognize that, you don't want to profane the name, you want to glorify it. You want to praise Him in it. His name means who He is. And Jeremiah 31-34 says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me. They're all going to know His name. They will all know My name, and I am the one who is speaking, He says in verse 6, Here I am. Now, I'm going to finish this out. And the interlude ends with a vision that has both immediate and long-term fulfillment. Watch this, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out from the, of the midst of her. Purify that yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Isaiah's got his prophet cap on. And he is prophesying. And if you were to read what he just wrote here, these few verses, of 50 years after, 150 years after he gave them, then you would probably, as a Babylonian exile, be tempted to say that this is fulfilled. If you are returning with Zerubbabel and Joshua in the first return out of the exile, if you are coming back and seeing Jerusalem after 70 years, and you are marching in there, you might be tempted to say, oh, yes, Isaiah 52, 7-12 is being fulfilled right here before our very eyes. Look at this. And you would be partially right. There is something of the return of the exiles here. God's going to do this great thing. He's going to bring His people back. And after all, unlike the deliverance from Egypt, when they left in haste, pursued by Pharaoh, the Babylonian exiles were told in verse 12, you will not go out in haste. You're not going to go out as fugitives. What does that mean? Cyrus decreed that they should go back. Cyrus freed them and they went out as free people, not as fugitives running for their lives like when Pharaoh was chasing them down. But Cyrus said, go back and go back as free people. He let them go. And they had time to gather their things and pack up the carts and get their stuff together and head on back to Jerusalem, not in haste. 
But as with so much of Isaiah's book, the fulfillment is far greater. And if you read through this, you see this. It's not the return of the exiles. This is the return of the remnant of Israel in that great day, on that beautiful morning. How can we be sure? Take it point by point. He says in verse 7, well, skip verse 7. He says in verse 8, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Your watchmen will see this with their own eyes. What watchmen? When the exiles returned in that first wave from Babylon, there were no watchmen in Jerusalem to look for them. There were no walls. There was barely any Jerusalem there. So there was no one there to meet and greet them as they came over the mountains and say, Hey, come on back in. We see the rest. No, it didn't happen. The watchmen weren't there. I've told you in another place in Scripture, I believe the watchman here and in the other place, and I'm going to have to think about where it was, Jeremiah 31 perhaps? I don't know. Look it up. The watchman. The watchman on the wall, I believe, refers to the church. I believe it refers to those of us who return with Jesus to Jerusalem, and we are the watchmen on the walls, and we declare praise and thanksgiving for God's people as they come back in, they will see with their own eyes. They will shout joyfully together, the watchmen. So that's one indication that this is a future tense thing. Secondly, Jerusalem is fully redeemed. Fully redeemed. Pay for 100%. Zion, restored. Note also in verse 10, the Lord has bared His holy arm. To bear the arm was a military term. That meant literally to take the robe up off the arm and onto the shoulder so that your arms were free for battle so that you could come ready to fight, wielding the sword and the shield. Which is exactly what Jesus does right before the return of the remnant of Israel at the end. It is not what happened with the exiles. The Lord didn't bear His arm. Well, figuratively He may have. Okay, figuratively I'll give you that. But we're talking literally here. And God will literally bear His arm the strong arm of the Lord, the divine reach of God, Jesus Christ. He's going to bear His arm. He's going to come riding back on that horse. Revelation 19, read it for yourself, as He comes in, conquering and victorious. So, the the arm is bared. Jesus fights for His people. We're also told here that all the ends of the earth will see the Lord's salvation. Did all the ends of the earth see the Lord's salvation when the exiles returned from Babylon? No. Everyone didn't even know that was going on. It was a quiet return, really. All the ends of the earth will see, verse 10, the salvation of our God. Again, the Yeshua of our God. And you may have heard a familiar verse here, back in verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, note this, says to Zion, pay attention, your God reigns. Those who are bringing the gospel and announcing to the people of Zion, to the Jewish people, hey, your God is God. Your God does reign. And that is part of the responsibility of the church, gang, to love Israel and to say your God reigns. He's the same God. Same God of Judaism is the God of Christianity. They just haven't fully understood the expression of Him in Jesus Christ yet. But He's the same God. Not the same God as Islam. Or Hinduism or Buddhism or any of the other isms out there. But the God of the Jewish people is the God of Christian faith. And it is 
our invitation, our call. Well, how do you say this, Rick? We'll go over to... Well, don't go there. Just listen. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Paul quotes this verse, Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says the exact same thing in Romans 10, verse 15. But understand, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that Romans 10 is in the midst of Paul's wonderful grand teaching on God's plan for Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about what God's doing for Israel. How He has not cast His people out. How He has a great plan for them. But this is interesting to me. And I do this. Romans chapter 10 tends to be used by Christians as a salvation passage. We go here and we use this passage to talk about how people get saved. Someone says, how do I get saved? How do I become a Christian? Oh, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And you know what? That is a salvation passage. And that's a great one to know and to, and to use with people. Here, you want to be saved? Here's what you do. Confess Him. Believe. You're good. But my friends, the ultimate context of Romans 10 is Israel. The people about whom Paul is talking, the people whose salvation Paul is concerned with in Romans chapter 10 anyway, is Israel. Romans chapter 10 verse 12, it says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? The they there, (laughs) it's hard to say, the they that Paul is referring to is Israel. How will they believe if someone doesn't go to them? How will they believe if someone doesn't tell them, if they haven't heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And 144,000 of them will be. How will they hear without a preacher? Just as it is written, and then Paul quotes Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now if you read it here in Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And Isaiah is referring to the mountains of Israel. How Beautiful on these mountains are those who are bringing good news. What is the good news? It's the return of the remnant. It's those of Israel who have awakened to redemption. And those who are bringing the good news on the mountains, here they come, look, there they come, the watchmen on the walls, they're coming home. They're making their way back here into the land. It's just marvelous. Note verse 11, one last thing here, depart, depart, and go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. That's going to be replayed. Because if you read toward the end of Revelation 16, 17, 18, as Babylon is falling, what does God tell His people who are in Babylon to do? Get out. Touch nothing unclean. Go home. Go back. Be restored. Isaiah is talking in this passage of that great coming restoration, I believe, just around the corner for Israel in Zion. The arm of the Lord shaking the bed with a wake-up call that anticipates that absolutely beautiful day. This interlude comes right before the fourth and most famous servant song of Isaiah, the song of the suffering servant. It begins there in verse 13. It runs all the way through chapter 53. The song of the suffering servant that details the death, the burial, even the resurrection and future existence of Jesus Christ with such historical accuracy that as I said on Sunday, Spurgeon said it's as though it had been written at the moment of the event. 
And we'll look at that on Sunday. But I remind you this, gang, because Israel's good news and ours is this. Isaiah 53 already happened. The event is for us a past tense thing. The servant has already awakened never to die again. And now what's left is for the people to awaken in repentance and awaken to redemption. And that's why I believe Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this interlude is so marvelous to me, and I just love, Lord, how we... We move from song to song and, and there's, there are these in-between passages and they themselves are so powerful, so remarkable. It reminds me yet again, Father, to love Your people Israel and to be one who brings good news to the Jewish people and one who prays for the peace of Jerusalem and does not give up on Your plan for Your people. It reminds me, Father, that we have little time that we are those who have awakened through repentance and redemption by the act of our Redeemer Jesus. We are awake in Jesus Christ. May we not get drowsy. May we not slumber, Lord. May we not nap along the way. Keep us bright and sharp and prepared for the day and looking for Jesus coming and using every moment. As Paul said, because the days are evil. We know that, Lord. And it's not something we fear. It's something we recognize. And we pray for an alertness and a soberness to do your will, Jesus, until you come. And it's in your precious name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.